Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Daniele Gradzi. He's the COO and founder of Axion AI. Daniele, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Paul, and uh, thanks for, uh, for having me. You're very welcome. Um, so, Daniele, you're an expert in AI and financial markets. Which came first, and <laughs> how did you discover uh, your interest in the markets? Yeah, well, uh, actually, I'm a software engineer by training. So uh, let's say that AI comes uh, first. Um, and actually, I got uh, attracted by computers quite young. <laughs> I got my first Commodore 64. I don't know if you know then. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to make you 1982-83 then for this uh, hey. anecdote. Hey. Yeah, well, I was born in 84, so <laughs> oh, wow. and uh, yeah, and I got that during preschool uh, and I started programming a few years later. Uh, it, it was nice at the time because the Commodore 64 came with uh, uh, a programming manual, not a user guide. So <laughs> apart from, let's say, playing cassettes where uh, games were, <laughs> were stored, then everything else uh, was actually programming. Brilliant. Uh, what language did it use? At the time, it was basic. Okay. Uh, yeah. So very, yeah, very early on stuff, uh, and uh, yeah, but but then, mm, well, obviously, I, I got into that. Uh, but also, my father has always had some little investment in stocks, so I got kind of interested in uh, in the mechanics, especially during the dot com dot com bubble in uh, in, in uh, two thousand. Um, so and actually, one of the first uh, softwares I developed. Uh, while I was, uh, I think, in secondary school, uh, was actually a stock market simulation game, uh, which uh, became quite a hit at, the, at my school. Uh, and yeah, uh, hopefully the game taught something about finance to my classmates. Brilliant. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that, yeah, that, that was the first time, uh, let's say, I merged uh, software engineering with, uh, with finance. Then I went on to university, I studied software engineering. I got quite interested in artificial intelligence, uh, which unfortunately was quite basic at the time. And actually, it wasn't even taught uh, at, at, uh, at the university. Uh, there, there, wasn't, there weren't uh, courses in artificial intelligence at that time uh, because, you know, there was lack of computation, power, lack of big data. And uh, so we were in the winter of AI, let's say. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I got... Uh, nevertheless, in, the, into, in general, the learning process, both uh, human and uh, machine, um, which actually someone would uh, probably argue they're the same thing, uh, but, uh, and then developed uh, a few experiments that used uh, genetic algorithms, uh, which, which, is, which is a class of machine learning techniques, um, and this to simulate uh, agent-based environments. For example, <laughs> one of the experiments was a simple game where uh, there was a sort of child learning autonomously to escape from a wolf in a forest. So uh, that, that, that were the things that amused me at the time. Quite nerdy, uh, probably. But um, yeah. You, sorry to cut in. You mentioned the phrase machine learning. <clears throat> yeah. What, 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 to, for a sort of an idiot like myself, how, what, what, what does that actually comprise? Is that trial and error or is it something more sophisticated than that? 
Yeah, well, actually, uh, there is uh, a lot of misconception when uh, people um, think uh, about artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, like being the same thing. Mm. So artificial intelligence is everything, um, it includes everything where, let's say, a computer, a software, uh, something like that, automated, um, makes decisions somehow, or or makes predictions, or, yeah, or makes decisions. Um, depending on how it gets to make those decisions, we say it's machine learning or uh, generally uh, expert systems. So expert systems are a class of softwares that um, where the rules are actively inputted by a human at the beginning uh, while, while it was developing the software. So uh, you may write an algorithms with specific rules to classify alone, for example. Uh, and that would be an expert system. Then you, you have it running autonomously and you get your loans classified uh, automatically. While on the other hand, machine learning is where you do not program the rules into the software, but you leave the software uh, understand and find the rules. So the machine learning effectively is capable of ev evolving. Yeah, yeah. It, it looks at the data and autonomously uh, finds out patterns, rules, uh, and yeah, it extracts them uh, automatically. So there, there is no human telling it, uh, this is uh, this is how you classify a loan, for example, a good one or a bad one, but you just uh, give the machine a lot of loans uh, telling it this was good, this was bad, etc. And the machine understands uh, and learns automatically uh, to classify them and classi classify new loans according to their characteristics, uh, depending whether they will be most likely good or, or bad. The, prob the problem I have conceptually with, with this, and it is probably as a, speaking as a Luddite, I mean, you mentioned <laughs> Commodore, I... I, I I think Paul and I are both of the Sinclair Spectrum generation, so yeah, from yeah, very, 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 very basic computers. But the, the problem I have conceptually is that what we do as human beings is, if you like, <clears throat> conditioned and uh, limited by or, or guided by morality, whereas I'm not sure a machine will ever really get morality. So what a machine is capable of doing, it could be quite, quite terrifying. In other words, we get to this fairly quickly into the realms of like Terminator and Terminator 2. We've gone philosophical very quickly, haven't we? I thought we might yeah. get there later, but okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, that's that's one of the concerns uh, a lot of people have, actually. Um, in, if you look at it philosophically, I think that you may argue uh, that uh, in the end, even humans are like a blend between um, rule-based... <laughs> Uh, behavior and uh, learning, well, machine learning somehow mm. from experience, and so we, which is the data that we, we get uh, along our life. Life. So, um, so yeah, um, morality is in the end a, a product of the complexity uh, of the learning machinery we have. Um, so, so yeah, uh, you could argue that it's nevertheless a, a product of a, a some kind of machine learning somehow. So, so yeah, obviously machines do not have, uh, if you don't put rules into them, they, they don't really have any pre pre preconception. Mm. Uh, and, and in the end, a lot of uh, our morality is actually like pre preconceptions we have built uh, along the millennia uh, about <laughs> things that can happen in life. 
um, and machines do not have that. So yeah, in that sense, yeah, they, they're not moral. Um, they could become moral. I don't know. They probably a very complex artificial intelligence system would probably um, develop its own moral system, which we simply couldn't understand because we, our brain does not work as a uh, as uh, the machine learning systems do. Um, and the, the abstractions we have and we do are very different from the ones that a machine learning system uh, is capable of. So, um, but yeah, it's a uh, it's something that probably will be a hot topic, I think, in the in the coming years, for sure. It's certainly a very hot topic at the moment. Um, yeah, when it comes to uh, the area of AI, it's something that is being debated at a level where algorithms for example in the things that we buy make so many decisions look at what we bought before look what other people have bought and say suggest things and that's relatively benign but where there's greater and greater debate is will be and i think um yuval noah harari talks about this in uh, <laughs> his latest books yeah. where he says um you know algorithms will know us better than we know ourselves now i wonder yeah. what you think about that because if I may just give my opinion on that, we we don't really know how we make decisions ourselves. Um, you mentioned a bit about the way we learn, but there's a lot of the, you know, the human brain that we just simply do not understand. And how we make decisions, as I say, we, we, we give post hoc rationalizations to why we do things. We don't necessarily know if that's why we're doing it. So something that we're saying could be as smart as us, seems to be for me a very long way away because we if we, how can we model something that we don't understand and we still don't understand ourselves is the simple point yeah yeah in fact with machine learning you're not trying to model anything uh you're just providing it the, the, the raw data let's say and uh, and then you leave the system to model it somehow in a way which is understandable given it's uh uh, capabilities, capabilities and uh, architecture. But it's uh, funny what you mentioned because uh, actually the, the explainability uh, topic is also a very hot one currently in the artificial uh, intelligence sector. And uh, we often hear um, in, in our sector uh, uh, demand for more transparency in how um, a machine learning system uh, makes a decision or a prediction in general. And uh, because, yeah, humans want uh, to be able to explain, to have a rationalization of um, a given prediction or decision made by the automatic system. While I agree with you, uh, we actually do not really understand how we make uh, decisions. Um, so, so, yeah, it's probably <laughs> counterintuitive in the end. Uh, and it's, it's funny when, when yeah, um, from my point of view, when, when I understand the need of explaining, but at the same time, I see the contradiction in terms, <laughs> given the fact that we ourselves cannot really explain how we think. So how can you think to be able to explain uh, a machine learning system? <laughs> it's probably uh, the, the more it, grew, it, grew, it grows uh, complex, then uh, the more difficult it is to, to explain it, obviously. And we as humans are so complicated that really we cannot really think to be able to understand everything that we uh, decide or or want. 
So, Daniele, I have a, a question for you. When you when you're setting out on a a project, do you do you, do you have a is it a goal based project? In other words, you're trying to come up make the the computer come out with some specific outcome, or do you kind of like reach for the stars and just say let it do its own thing and just see what happens? No, uh, well, in uh, in machine learning, there are actually two um, two, two two types of uh, two, two main types of, of uh, uh, structure you can give to to, to a machine learning uh, system. So you, you can have a supervised machine learning system where you provide uh, data, but also the right prediction for each of those pieces of data that the model should have given um, if it was active in the past. So like so, basically that would be something like you've got pictures of a dog, pictures yeah. of a cat, and then other animals and then you give the computer all the data and you say these are dogs these are cats yeah. and these we don't know and then then you show it new data and it says and it will work out out of a hundred percent whether it thinks it's a dog or a cat or something else exactly exactly yeah. and and for example uh, using your uh, your example uh, there are um papers scientific papers but and also um tech that that shows that uh, when uh, you train, uh, for example, a machine learning model to, to discriminate between uh, cats and dogs, what, what it does is actually uh, making up a set of rules uh, that uh, it, uses, it uses as heuristics to decide whether the image is a cat or a dog. So it, it may uh, learn to uh, identify a certain shape uh, uh, of, the, of the nose, for example, <laughs> right? So you um, don't know which bit, like, uh, that's a really interesting point because I remember there was some AI that was looking at, uh, I think it was um, tanks on, so the, it was looking at tanks and for some reason it was looking at another feature but that wasn't yeah. the tank in order to identify the tank. So it may have been, yeah. it was on grass or something else and so it yeah, exactly. appeared to work and then it didn't because we didn't know or the system didn't know or the yeah. people who were using the system didn't know exactly what it was using for the features. So that's really interesting. So it might just be, yeah. like you say, one small part. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it happens uh, and that's called overfit <laughs> when it happens. So the, the system has learned something which is not, uh, that does not generalize uh, to new instances of uh the thing you want to predict or detect. Uh, so, for example, in your example of dog and cats, it would be uh, discriminating between dogs and cats depending on the background. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, <laughs> it does not make sense, uh, but it can happen if you don't do not care. Um, you're not enough careful to uh, regarding the the data you're providing uh, to the to the machine learning system. In machine learning, it's extremely true the the saying uh, that garbage in, garbage out. So, right. I remember I used to have a client, Pamuel Gordon, stockbroker, and they. This is at the dawn of um, use of the internet. So it must be some time after '96 and Netscape Navigator and all that stuff. And their IT department tried to block them from from looking at pornography. <laughs> and it, it, it's uh, apparently the, the the way that their system worked was if, if you were looking at images that had a large amount of pink color pink in them then it would automatically assume it was porn so they started downloading pictures of pigs just to <laughs> deliberately block the system 
<laughs> probably a very inappropriate anecdote yeah. to, to to bring forward now, but I I don't so care anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and yeah, I was saying that also the other type of uh, machine learning framework, let's say, it's uh, um, uns unsupervised. Uh, so where you ask the system to um, identify outliers. So you provide it with a, with a lot of data and you uh, ask him to uh, learn some kind of rule that can um, explain, let's say, in, in its uh, reasoning, all uh, the, the most of the, uh, sorry, the, the, the data that you um, provided it with. Uh, so, for example, that's a technique which is used uh, to detect uh, anomalies uh, in several um, data sets. We employ that uh, technique, for example, to, um, uh, to produce our market anomaly detection scores, which uh, we, we have in, on several asset classes, um, where simply the system is trained to produce a score that tells you how, how anomalous uh, it is, the, the um, the data that it's getting from the market, uh, combining it with, let's say, the context um, it, it, it is seeing in the market itself. Yeah. So in other words, there's no, there's no way of actually giving it a specific label and saying this is good, this yeah. is bad. What it's doing is it's sorting through the data and just saying, look, I found these general patterns which seem yeah. to be existent most of the time. But every now and again, something is very different, and that's an anomaly, and that's what yeah. we flag out. And that could mean a big market move, um, or it could be from a big market move back to a normal market move. But it's showing it's ahead of the data, because, of course, as a human, we can't process as much data. That's the main advantage computers have got. Um, but yeah. especially with AI, they can look at a tremendous amount of data. Yeah, exactly. And uh, f to give you another uh, example, in, in the crypto space, for example, we, we are using this technique uh, on several um, cryptos, and the system is looking not only at the uh, time series of the prices of each crypto, but also, uh, well, context data, general market data, but also blockchain data. So the anomaly score of a given uh, crypto may spike uh, even if there is no volatility at all, but just uh, very inexplainable moves in the blockchain that are not reflected in the price uh, according to the rules that the, that the model has learned over time. So it may mean that there is something uh, changing underneath, uh, which is not yet reflected uh, in the price. Uh, and it doesn't tell you whether the price will go up or down. It just tells you there is something strange in, in the data. This pattern is an outlier. Uh, and so you should be alert and maybe take a look at the data because there is something strange. How, how do you know how much data to backtest when you're... I was just going to ask exact, exactly <laughs> the same question. Well, uh, usually you, you need... There are constraints in the financial markets uh, in terms of the data that you can get, um, which it's deemed uh, sufficiently consistent and clean. Um, so depending on the uh, asset classes you are targeting with uh, the system you are developing then, uh, and also the prediction horizon in terms of time um, and the frequency of the prediction, because obviously if you are uh, looking for daily predictions on uh, 
the probability of an asset to perform another in uh, one month, then uh, you need daily data mainly uh, to process. So you need to go back uh, in time for at least, I don't know, 20 years. While uh, if you are looking at uh, tick by tick data and uh, uh, you're looking to predict a few ticks ahead, then uh, uh, you need a, a short time span uh, because, uh, well, there is a lot of data already in uh, going back just a few minutes or hours or days. And in addition, you, you cannot discount the fact that the system itself may have changed uh, over time. Um, so the dynamics of the system may have changed uh, over time in, in a more frequent, um, in, with higher frequencies in terms of data that uh, is uh, very important uh, to take into account. So usually we go for the longest uh, time frame available, which is uh, clean enough and for which we are sure there haven't been substantial changes in the way the data was recorded um, or any issue in uh, big changes in the dynamics or rules of the underlying markets. In your experience, Daniele, is there any distinction between different types of assets or do pretty much every all financial assets behave in broadly comparable ways as far as the as far as AI is concerned? No, actually, uh, we see there are differences uh, between asset classes. Less because, because clearly some will be more volatile in price terms and some will be less volatile. Yeah, but but mainly what, what changes is the sensibility uh, to different type of uh, data, obviously, <laughs> and yep. features and yeah. So so yeah, what what we see is that uh, well, we benefit a lot from um, applying agnostic uh, uh, machine learning models. So in, inside one asset class or or one type of instrument, for example, futures, then we benefit from training models that. Uh, learn across rather than uh, training uh, specialized models, one for each asset. Mm. Um, so our takeaway from that is that there are dynamics that are uh, common to yeah, common to markets. Common enough, yeah. <laughs> let's say, to assets. Yeah. Well, that that actually brings me on to another question about different applications because it's such a hot area and. Later on, I'm going to link this to my media pick, but it must be, you must be like, a, a, in some ways, a kid in a candy store, because there's so many things you can do with this, like, say, create art if you wanted to, or um, obviously you, you, you're solving these problems, but there's so, so many other things you can do once you know how to gather data and, and, and uh, process it in this way. So, for example, I know that some people use AI data of, of, um, of satellite images for crops to know whether the futures markets are going to yeah. move and stuff like that. I mean, that that's like it's your 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 imagination is is your only limit for what you could do with this. Yeah, yeah. Um, in any case, I think that especially when you work with the uh, lower frequency data, for example, we are specialized in using daily data, uh, most of all. Um, you need to be careful to uh, avoid over <laughs> including data in your, your model because the, the more data you put in, in terms of features and in, in, the, wide, in the wideness of, uh, of the data, um, the, the, the more probable becomes overfitting it somehow. Uh, so 
we think that a careful analysis of the data that you plug in is necessary. There should be some kind of uh, even hypothesis uh, that that type of data may have an impact. We, we may not, we always, we never have an hypothesis on how a certain type of data may impact uh, uh, an asset and its behavior in the market, but we generally have an hypothesis on that data probably having some kind of impact uh, on that um, asset. Um, and we think that this necessary to, to select a little bit what you put, plug in the system. And you need to couple this with the very strong uh, feature selection techniques, which are the, the selection, the, the, the techniques that you use to uh, filter the data that you have and the features that you generate from that data um, to avoid overexposing <laughs> your, your model to data, which is totally irrelevant. Because obviously, every time you put in some kind of data, which is a simple noise, uh, so totally uh, uncorrelated with the with the asset behavior, you make the life of the model more difficult. So you can expect to have decreased performance or longer training time, uh, etc. So yeah, uh, in, any, in any case, it, it is a candy store <laughs> in the end. And we often, in general, uh, also uh, with the team here, um, they generally uh, report this fact that in general, with, in financial in the financial market, if you want to apply AI, uh, yeah, there is a lot of data, and you are in front of a problem that uh, actually does not have any definite solution. Uh, is always changing, and what I always say is that we actually are in a game of learning, not in a game of uh, knowledge. So you're the best in this sector if you truly have a very solid learning process and adaptation process rather than uh, if you find the perfect truth, which is valid probably until tomorrow and no more. So I have a, a, a question in relation to um, an area of the, the trading world that we invest in um, on behalf of clients, which is systematic trend following or sort of CTA, um, commodity trading advisor funds. The way the way you express the sort of flexibility of a um, a computer based system, which I, I I would guess most CTAs do follow to a certain extent, although they're they're clearly programmed by humans at least in the, the initial stages. How on earth can a human being possibly compete with the if you like the neutrality of a uh, of software that that clearly won't be worried about making making the wrong decision? So it'll it's like it seems to have such an advantage in in terms of flexibility and in terms of not having any emotion in relation to price action. How can how could a human being ever ever beat that? Well, actually, I think that um, I believe really in the augmentation of uh, humans with AI uh, because inevitably AI has some blind spots, uh, being so let's say careless in uh, in the prediction it makes or the decision it takes. Yeah, uh, linking back to what we were talking before regarding morality, yeah. Uh, the AI system does not care about what you think about its decisions or, or predictions. Uh, so, and it really doesn't care uh, about how it looks or how extreme it is. Exactly, so, it, it, it's not afraid of looking <laughs> stupid. No, yeah, exactly. But uh, this is this, which is a strength, becomes a weakness when, uh, for example, there are um, very anomalous um, 
moments in the market or where which lead to very dirty data mm. uh, out of distribution data uh, outlier data and that that could be for example because of distressed selling that's not going to be yeah, remotely sustaining yeah for example so for example uh, like when you've got say oil prices trading negative 60 dollars yeah. or whatever exactly that's that is a perfect example uh, and uh, in those cases th- these are things that human get uh, immediately that there is something <laughs> very big, very, very Something wrong. weird weird and unsustainable yeah. going on. Yeah, so in that case, um, humans are uh, really uh, needed to um, as a component of experience and, uh, well, logic uh, into into the system. But at the same time, the, the AI in, uh, in all the other locations can really provide a view on what happens in the market uh, with insights uh, that are uh, yeah, unique because in the end humans cannot process all that data uh, while mm. computers do. So, and that also links to explainability because in the end, I think that when you use AI system to augment the uh, potential and capabilities of a human, then yes, explainability is useful even if it's not complete. So, uh, for example, there are techniques that uh, uh, even when you use the more complex machine learning systems or deep learning, etc., uh, there are techniques that allow you to see, given a specific prediction, um, which data um, led the machine to that prediction uh, the most. So for example, uh, it can tell you that it predicts that uh, a certain stock will overperform another, mainly because, um, mainly due to its, uh, uh, let's say, fundamental data, um, compared to its momentum factors, et cetera. Um, and that could be helpful to the uh, human, not only for the prediction itself, but also for uh, as an insight, uh, uh, like uh, a tip towards uh, what should be investigated further from an analyst perspective um, to see really what is happening with that stock. And the same applies with the anomaly systems. Uh, anomaly detection systems, which can tell you there is something anomalous in the behavior of a given asset, tell you um, in particular which uh, data seems out of sync, let's say, with with the rest. So giving um, a hint uh, to the analyst uh, in terms of where to look. So you use the term deep learning. Could you explain to people what that actually means? Yeah, sure. Uh, so when uh, we refer to machine learning, we, we refer to uh, all types of techniques that uh, just rely on the data to uh, generate the learning uh, of the system. Uh, deep learning is a subclass of uh, machine learning where um, very deep neural network networks are used um, as predictive models. So. Uh, these are the neural networks uh, that uh, will learn, let's say, by getting exposure to the data, um, patterns and uh, logics to decide or predict uh, what you're training them for. Um, and so they are neural networks, so they really resemble the way that uh, the, the human brain works with the neurons connected to each other, etc. Very deep, so with a lot of neurons, uh, in several layers, which cascade one after the other, uh, with very complex interconnections between neurons. 
and with a learning pattern uh, and system that really resembles the way um, that human brain uh, works in terms of um, yeah, neuroscience, <laughs> if you want, uh, in terms of uh, thresholds and uh, spikes of activities and strength of connection between uh, neurons. So yeah, um, deep learning is an evolution of the traditional neural networks, which were developed really in the 70s, but then didn't get really uh, a big success because at the time there, there weren't really the, the computation power needed to simulate a lot of neurons, so you can work with uh, neural networks of 8, 16 neurons, which aren't enough to, to really produce uh, meaningful results with a lot of data. Um, deep learning become possible when, uh, uh, in particular, when uh, um, the, the, say the, the, the industry started using um, graphic processing units, so GPUs, that were made for video games to really parallelize computation, um, that the same type of computation that is used into neural network, and that really reduced the time needed to train a neural network over a large amount of data, and that made possible um, creating neural networks that were more complex, and and so were able to uh, grasp uh, more sophisticated patterns in the data they they, they were they are seeing. That happened uh, around uh, 2012, probably, uh, 20, between 2012 and 2016. Uh, everything really happened very, very fast uh, at the time. And so we had this combination of um, computation power, new techniques, uh, and uh, uh, big data that all um, converged together, uh, making possible this this AI uh, revolution. So one of the first, if I'm, please correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, one of the first applications of the AI technology was used to identify handwriting. And they had, you know, a database of tens of thousands of examples of handwriting that the system then um, yeah. broke down into its, it, what it thought the letters were and then then it learned from there which is something that we can do on a modern computer in probably in 20 minutes with a few lines of code but back then it would have been <laughs> virtually you know it would have probably taken weeks and have been a, a massive problem yeah yeah no true um the database you're referring to is widely used in the scientific world uh and it has long been considered uh uh, like a benchmark for any type of uh, automatic recognition algorithm. So it was used uh, also to benchmark, let's say, deep learning. And that's where it started, deep learning really started showing the, the difference it could make in terms of accuracy, which really uh, spiked up uh, and wasn't <laughs> really comparable with, with previous techniques. That really showed the world that the potential of, uh, of deep learning. But it also shows how much um, the data, like good data, is so important. So, yeah. so it's it's almost. I mean, I don't know what you think about this, but it feels to me that things have changed to the point where the, the technologies are so advanced that it's actually mm -hmm. the data now that that needs to be um, gathered and analysed because we have access probably 
in the way that I was saying before about you can get any data you want pretty much today that you couldn't even say five or 10 years ago. And it's just that the processing of that data and then knowing intelligently what to teach the system to look for or, or what to feed the system to see what it might find. Would that be fair? Yeah. Um, yeah, true. Um, so today there is yeah really a lot of data that you can uh, include to train a predictive model. Uh, so and you do have the computation power and the techniques to to do that. Um, I still find that in the financial uh, in financial markets, actually it's a little bit more complex than that because uh, obviously here we are talking about uh, predictive problems where an accuracy of I don't know fifty six percent is incredibly high. Uh, for example, when you want to pr predict uh, uh, whether uh, an asset will overperform another over a certain time horizon. So it's a very, uh, an extremely noisy problem. So uh, the tiny amount of overfit really uh, brings you um, to, to almost random uh, predictive power. Yeah, in the financial markets, um, well, it is a very complex um, um, field, so any accuracy over 50% uh, produces generally results. 56% uh, is very high. Uh, and uh, this means that even the, the tiny amount of noise or overfit or problem in the process of, uh, of data. So just to summarize, you're basically yeah. saying that that and actually it was going to tie into a question that I was going to ask about time frame because there there are traders who trade well, no high frequency traders who trade in milliseconds there's obviously long term investors like um uh, and fund managers like Tim when you're creating a system that could potentially be inverted commas overfit you have to know what you could potentially be overfitting for in terms of your time frame um, because like you say, outperformance of one market against another may exist for say two or three months, which is what you might want to trade, but you might be more interested in two or three years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously the choice of, uh, data, uh, really starts from looking at the, uh, timeframe of the prediction you want. Um, we often say that this is a fractal world. <laughs> so when you want to predict uh, longer um, horizons, time horizons, then you need uh, to have a slower, lower frequency in the data that you look at, uh, while you could replicate the same thing at uh, a higher scale <laughs> or a smaller say, scale, if you want, uh, looking, uh, having predictions uh, of a few milliseconds ahead, looking at thick data uh, so so yeah it really depends on the type of prediction you want the, the type of data that which is available for the asset class you're trying to predict um, and uh, yeah but but that, that's not that doesn't end the, end there actually because um, it isn't like you can take all the data that you can and put it into the system because uh, everything you put into the system well you need to have it uh, carefully analyzed to ensure that it doesn't include any uh, leakage, which happens more frequently than uh, you can imagine, uh, or uh, any inconsistency because maybe a certain uh, data type was recorded 
in one way up until a certain point in time, and then uh, the rule or the or the sampling was slightly changed. And you, you, you don't if you do not analyze that, you, you do not know that, and you give it to the system, obviously, uh, and uh, the system um, thinks it is a consistent type of data and really learns noise from it. So, um, so yeah, it's it's a very complex um, element. I think it is becoming the really uh, key uh, step in any process that applies AI to the financial markets, um, whereby the uh, the machine learning algorithms are quite commoditized almost already. Uh, you can really find a lot of open source libraries. So th there are no <laughs> big secrets or big edges uh, there. While the way you treat data and the way you ensure that your system is really generalizing its uh, understanding of the, of the market and it, and it is not overfitting on the data you are providing it, that, that's the, the, the key for the future. I suppose, no, I mean, this whole topic is utterly fascinating. I guess one general generalist question would be, could it ever be the case that, I mean, pe people's um, own systems are going to be presumably proprietary, so they, they, they tend not to be open source, I assume. Could there ever be a situation where if people did share a, a system that worked really well, then the market could become almost like perfectly efficient and prices would never change because anything that varied even slightly would just get, get arbitraged away. So all markets would become a flat line of prices. <laughs> well, uh, actually, the arbitraging um, of edges applies also to machine learning systems. So um, you see a decay of alpha given a certain uh, predictive models over, model over time. Uh, which means, obviously, there is someone who is <laughs> touching you. Um, so I, I don't think it would lead to a flat line, uh, but for sure um, it, it is a constant race of arms <laughs> in the end. So um, new ways to, to treat data will uh, come up, uh, new ways to optimize the hyperparameters of um, machine learning models uh, will be developed. Uh, new ways to compute uh, will be employed, such as quantum computing, which is actually the next step, uh, the next big step, probably, in artificial intelligence. So there, there, I think there, there will be always something new that someone at the edge of the application of AI uh, to the financial market will be able to leverage to be one step ahead. So do you think that um, computers will ever be as smart or indeed smarter than human beings? And it's a difficult word to really define what smart or intelligence is. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that uh, there will be a different kind of smart. Uh, so it, it isn't really comparable um, because the way computers will uh, reason uh, in their most complex form would be substantially different from the way we uh, do reason. Uh, so they will be probably smarter in a lot of uh, areas, um, very specific areas uh, where uh, being unbiased is particularly important. 
uh, where, yeah, rules may change frequently <laughs> or, um, yeah, there, and where there is a lot of data to, that influences um, a certain outcome. Uh, in those areas, I think, yeah, computers will be way smarter than, uh, than us. But on the other hand, they will probably won't be able to really match um, the other areas uh, of peculiar human sensibility. And this is not because of uh, an absolute impossibility uh, in terms, because obviously if you recreate, at least uh, in my opinion, if you recreate uh, um, electronically <laughs> a complete human brain with all its connections and all its uh, also links to a body for some in some way if that would be possible then yeah maybe that would be uh, a type of smart which is uh, resembling uh, the humankind uh, but in absence of that uh, specific sensibilities of what it's like to be a human uh, will be uh, will stay in the realm of humans so do, do you think that at some point in the future, um, machine learning systems will have to be taxed in the way they <laughs> operate in the same way that, you know, human beings are being taxed? Well, tough question. Uh, I think it really depends. Uh, it, it probably, this is a matter that uh, inserts in a wider uh, topic of uh what will be of human life mm. when uh, most of the activities needed for human sustainment will be automatic. Um, so yeah, I'm not sh I, I don't know if uh, it will be the machine learning system to be taxed or if um, <laughs> money will stop uh, to exist <laughs> yeah. somehow. Right. Um, so yeah, but obviously, uh, if, uh, and, and this is a big if, if the current um, world order and uh, society and type of world we are living in is, will, uh, will keep existing, and given global warming, etc., that's not a given, um, then a, a substantial change uh, in the basic framework uh, of um, how we structure society uh, will happen with the evolution of artificial intelligence because really uh, everything will change and and yeah humans uh, will be less use, uh, useful for several tasks which will be automated and and so yeah we, we, we need to rethink the way um, the, the way we see uh, a human life uh, in terms of uh, being productive or uh yeah the role of work in society etc so, it's, yeah. it's so interesting that if you look at the predictions in the sort of 50s and 60s they had this um this idea that we would have robots that would be doing the washing up and serving us and cooking for us and all this sort of stuff and here we are 2021 and and we've got a you know dishwasher and washing machines we've got those machines but we still haven't got a machine that's intelligent enough to do even something as simple as that. And yet we, in some areas, it's so amazingly advanced. Like for example, if you go to the website that this was, this was one that Manuj, uh, a mutual um, friend and, 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 and business partner mentioned, um, 
thispersondoesnotexist.com. If you go to that website and and just refresh it a few times, you'll see pictures of people that literally do not exist. This is it's it's computer at well, AI generated faces and it's uh, and it's just incredible not just faces but just like um you know head and shoulders of people and it's just strange to know that these people aren't real but yet they look yeah. amazingly real yeah I, I think that uh, the let's say the boundary between uh, what has seen a lot of advancement and what has not is uh the type of senses that involves because uh, if you think about it everything that uh is related to touch to uh, physical sensations uh, it hasn't really seen substantial advancement so you, yes you can create a picture of a person that does not exist and I see it with my eyes so everything that I, we see with our eyes we can see in a, in a screen and everything we, we, we can see in a screen uh, can be uh, generated easily for the ways screens are made uh, while there isn't really a, a screen for touch, you know? Mm. Uh, there, and so, for example, everything that has to do with touch, really, yeah, you, you cannot simulate uh, uh, the touch of another hand uh, e as easily as you can simulate uh, the, 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 the picture of, of, of a face that does not exist. Um, and but you, but you so, can fool the yeah. brain, though, just to cut, sorry to cut in there, but you can fool the brain into thinking it's touching and seeing touching something that's not there yeah you you probably could but it's a um, lot more invasive than just showing a picture on a screen well there's um, a, there's <laughs> a there's a uh there's a, a like a circus trick that that is done where somebody sits down at a table and they have a, a divider and Basically, they put their arm, their right arm under the table, if you can imagine that, and then they have a divider where they can see this this fake arm. And then, um, actually, sorry, their hand isn't under the table. The, ha the hand is just slightly out of shot, but they can't see their hand, and they're looking at the fake hand. Now, what the brain, what what's done is the, the, the person who's doing the trick will stroke the fake arm as well as stroking the real arm at the same time. And that primes the brain to look at the fake arm and think that the fake arm is real. And then, then what they do is they get uh, out of the blue, they grab a hammer and whack the fake arm and the person feels pain and jumps as though they've been hit, which of course they haven't. I think so, a career in both porn and S&M beckons, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, so what I'm saying by that, I know that's just like a parlor trick, but it's also a really, really interesting insight into what the brain is doing. It's making a connection that isn't there because it's trying to make sense of the reality that's in, in front of them. And the next yeah. step that I think these tech companies are investing in is potentially things that, that could tap into that and make the, the, the digital realm feel real, in which case every, all these technologies that are in digital form on a flat screen will perhaps in the next five years or so um, you know, come to life or, or almost literally because you mentioned computer power and AI and it was clear that the tech companies knew all about 
AI and what they could do with it with with you know YouTube and everything 10 years ago maybe even more because this yeah. is why these companies were valued so highly because they knew they had this technology we didn't know it trickled down to us in the last th 3 or 4 years maybe but but they had the power and the money to know where it all was and 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 this is where i think things like what facebook are doing seems really crazy right now but perhaps in the next five years or so it'll all become you know and there'll be another quantum shift in this stuff <laughs> yeah it may well be that that that's what they call the metaverse yeah um, so so yeah it, it's quite scary <laughs> tell me maybe because i was born in 84 but well um, <laughs> it's so interesting that you say that that it's quite scary because i think a lot of people think that it is quite scary and <laughs> again I, I go back to the yuval Noah harari talk that he gave and and in his book um uh, 21 lessons for the 21st century where he, he talks about the future where algorithms as i say know more about us than we do and i i always resist to be fair i i, I just want to resist that because i just don't think they can know because what you what you really need to know about us is is the amount of data that you need is is isn't just a couple of years or even five years it's much more than that um because we do keep evolving and we change in 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 different ways and and very unpredictably as well like you know you can be into a band and then suddenly decide that you you don't want you don't like them anymore and 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 that can you can't really explain why that happens it's just you know a subtle change and you move on and it's it's weird so there's so many things that w i mean that's just a you know a, a, a kind of just some random thing that might happen but it's it's like trying to explain why and the ai is always trying to look for well it's trying to look for patterns of course but how how can you then say that the AI would know us better when we don't know why we're making that? And I know you're not actually saying this, but how, I, I, this is what I, I think about. Like, how can the AI even think that it might know us better? Now, I think you, Yuval Noah Harari, to be fair, can't write a line of code. He says so himself. He doesn't know anything about it. And, and I think this is why... Um, this is why he worries more about it. But, you know, you're like completely at the other end of this, the spectrum in the sense that you're at the cutting edge of it. <laughs> and if you say you're a little bit worried about it, I guess that makes me a bit more worried about it. <laughs> yeah, well, I've recently read several uh, scientific papers that uh, talked about the fact that we are uh, way more predictable than, than we think. So... Yeah. Well, I, I believe that. I mean, as, as uh, Tim knows, I'm a big fan of a guy called Darren Brown, who's for many years been predicting, showing us how predictable we are in how we how easily we are in 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 being influenced. So how we can be influenced yeah. to make decisions and um, and how predictable we are as individuals, let alone as groups. So as groups, we become more predictable, not less, because the difference is even out. Um, so I, I get that we are predictable up to a certain point, but then as individuals, we then become, you know, you can be really, really predictable up to a point and then suddenly completely unpredictable. You know, that that's just how people are. Um, it, it, it was certainly in my mind, maybe, maybe I've got that wrong, but you know, I, I, I just think that they, that people just change sometimes and that they don't even know why they're doing it.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that given the complexity of a human being, uh, 100% predictability is not reachable um, from a practical standpoint. Uh, in or, general, or desirable, some might say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. I definitely agree. Uh, yeah, and uh, in general, predictability is a function of the data you have available. Um, so up until 10 years ago, probably there was little data about each uh, of us, um, which was, let's say, usable by computers. Uh, Now there is a lot more. Um, Still, it's not enough to uh, really reach uh, philosophical uh, predictability of human decision. Um, But it may uh, increase over time. Um, I mean, we we do are monitoring ourselves uh, even outside of social medias with uh, smartwatches uh, or, well, cell phones, we always have them with us. And they start, they are starting monitoring um, several uh, aspects uh, of our biology, uh, biology too. So it's not impossible to imagine that in, uh, I don't know, 20 years, um, a lot more data about our biological selves uh, will be gathered by this um, the, the, <laughs> these uh, technologies. So that data may uh, obviously increase the predictability of humans. If we think about where computers have come from, and then then we think about how advanced your Commodore 64 was at that time, and then we now look at what we have in front of us, like on our smartphones and computers, and then via what's called cloud computing where whereby you can access very powerful computers without actually owning them um you can just rent space and com- computational power um on them it's it is actually incredible especially when you i mean my nephew's um you know went to university and he um he studied uh, quantum as part of his course he was studying quantum machine learning and i was like uh-huh. um <laughs> you know, quantum computing machine learning, which I'm just like, as you mentioned before, how you even get your head around that concept, I don't know. But that is such a leap forward again in technology um, that who really knows where any of this is going to go. But in the end, I think what makes us human um, defines what intelligence and what um, what consciousness is, which no matter how smart a system can be in processing data, I th- I would argue that that there is no no way of making it conscious. You can make it appear to be conscious, but there's no an actual consciousness is is something that again very philosophical question, but it's <laughs> it's it's something that we can't define, but we kind of understand what what that is. But it's yeah. not, not something that we can even teach a computer. Yeah, well, uh, up until you cannot define it, you can re- you cannot really be certain that the computer doesn't have it. Mm. Actually, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because it's true. We, we, well, there are definitions, uh, I guess, uh, but in general, yes, it is something that we cannot really define specifically, but we do understand uh, natively. Um, we cannot exclude that uh, a computer, when it's running with, a, with this machine learning system, um, has something of, of that. We cannot describe it, 
it cannot he also cannot describe it, uh, but maybe it's just uh, its uh, way of working, which could be a different form of consciousness. We don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's uh, yeah, very interesting. So, t- Tim, have you got any final questions that you want to ask? I'm out. I'm. I'm just. There's a lot to process here. It's, it's, it's such a fascinating subject. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask a, a couple more, Daniele, if I may. Um, sure. From what I remember, your first, uh, well, one of your first systems that you created with AI was the foreign exchange trading system. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Sure. That that was uh, like the fir- one of the, our first tries in applying AI uh, in the financial sector. And uh, yeah, that then attracted the interest of a small hedge fund, which uh, ultimately bought uh, the trading algorithms we developed. And and now you use, um, and this will lead to a requirement to make a a kind of explanation of what a GAN is, but you've you've created a, a cutting, you've used a cutting edge technology within machine learning that's generally regarded as being the, the kind of most exciting area and you've you've taken that um, which if you go to this person does not exist and you look at the, the people there it ta- it uses this same concept to try to predict outperformance by um, of stocks against each other so it uses this GAN technologies am I right in saying that yeah we, we did that and uh, we actually were probably one of the in the first in Europe, for sure, um, we published uh, at a conference, um, um, uh, well, actually at the NVIDIA GTC of 2018, if I'm not wrong, um, what we called FinGAN. <laughs> so GANs are gen- generative adversarial models. So they are deep uh, neural networks that uh, work in a peculiar way because you, you actually have two networks, one is trying to fool the other <laughs> somehow, and so in this in the uh, person does not uh, that person does not exist case, uh, then you have a network generating um, a face and another network trying to determine if that face is real or not, and uh, so they improve each other um, while th- they themselves improve. So the one generating uh, pictures improves by getting the feedback of the one uh, of the network that tells uh, that tries to detect whether uh, the face that was generated was real and vice versa but they don't and share that they don't share the data though do they they just share the they they yeah. they so the one one shows a picture and says is this is this a person and the other one says uh, i think it is and then if it is if it isn't it says no no you were wrong and then it does it again until it improves yeah. rather than yeah. actually sharing the the, the 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 raw data that it's using basically mm, yeah no uh, exactly exactly uh, and yeah obviously the the one that tries to identify whether the picture is uh, real or not uh, is sometimes shown uh, a real one um, because that network was also as also um, the need to learn uh, to uh, identify well whether a picture is real or not uh, but um, yeah, they, they don't do not really share data, uh, and we apply the same concept um, to financial time series, developing what we call FinGAN, um, which was a system that um, took, um, let's say, the, it, just even just the price chart of, of an asset uh, with uh, 
the addition of con context data regarding the market uh, that uh, asset was in, and uh, it, it learned to generate possible future paths uh, for that price uh, in the future that uh, were then labeled in terms of how likely they were to be real by an adversarial network um, coupled to, 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 to the first one. So, so yeah, the, the output was, uh, let's say, imagine a price chart with several, uh, up to today, with several potential uh, future price paths, um, each one with a different uh, transparency level according to how much it was deemed likely to happen. And that uh, actually ultimately provided you with uh, uh, cones or, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, how you, you can call it them, what ranges where the price uh, will most likely move uh, in a given future time frame. So yeah, we, we developed that. Uh, we published it in, uh, at a NVIDIA conference, uh, which was really uh, nice because uh, it was very competitive also in terms of being able to present there. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's still early days, I think, for, for that type of technology. These are networks which are very, very hard uh, to train meaning that very often it happens that you have those these two networks that are trying to learn, but they, they're really not learning uh, anything. Um, so they do not converge to any type of <laughs> learning. Um, so it's it's a very, let's say, wild <laughs> technology and technique to, to, to use uh, as for today, but um, it is indeed something which uh, has a lot of potential in the future, especially for, uh, um, I see for that technology use cases such as scenario generation, for example, where you you do have a, a, an asset and uh, in its price over time, and then uh, you say, okay, what if um, interest rates go up? What, for example, and then you have a network generating possible futures, uh, which take into account uh, the fact that interest rates went up. Right. So it's an adaptive model. Uh, yeah. for changes that you make to it not necessarily changes that have happened just to see exactly yeah yeah no that's 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 really interesting um so your future projects what what are you looking to do will you ever write a book on this stuff or are you just too busy with with what you're doing well currently uh, i'm not busy <laughs> with what we are doing uh but um yeah no projects for the future um where we are actually like in, in the mission of automating uh, completely the process that goes from data to uh, predictive models for financial time series. So we really believe that um, in this world being a learning game, not a knowledge game, uh, the, the, the edge you can have is the um, process you have to um, train, evolve, select predictive models, which so in a way that is overfit free, data, le data leakage free, uh, bias free also, um, and that adapts co constantly according to market changes. So um, we are pursuing that. Uh, we are really, uh, I mean, focused on uh, being airtight in terms of uh, data handling and uh, uh, overfit avoidance. So uh, a very strong process that uh, trains and select predictive models and uh, um, use all the, the, the most advanced techniques to ensure 
uh, that the data we provide to our models are are uh, uh, is clean actually. Um, so that's our main area of work. We are developing several uh, AI power strategies for several asset classes, leveraging uh, this constantly improving automatic uh, automated engine. Um, so in 2022, uh, we'll uh, really widen the coverage uh, that that we have um, across equities, commodities, uh, and uh, uh, multi asset in particular. We are also um, working in the crypto space. Uh, I personally believe that in 10 years, the boundary between traditional finance and centralized finance will be way smoother than <laughs> than it is now. So I think that it's uh, very important for a player like us to be uh, to be in both uh, areas, uh, given the fact that the, the same technology that we use in traditional asset management, I mean, it's it's the same technology you can use in the crypto space. So 2022, we'll see a lot of that um, at Axel. Um, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Uh, then, again, in terms of techniques we're using, um, I really believe in the market anomaly detection uh, as a very interesting tool for, for the future. So uh, to be able, I mean, we live in a very certain time uh, with the, and the financial markets are, are a very complex uh, system. Um, and it is really becoming key to um, even sometimes simply get out of the market when the market becomes completely <laughs> irrational. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's another area we are uh, working on. Brilliant, fantastic. So um, Tim, I think we should go to to media picks. What do you think? Let's let's go for it. Okay. Do you want to go first? Shall I go first? Um, so I was going to go with something um, relatively, well, it seems relatively trivial because I was going to say how much I'm enjoying Seinfeld, which I hadn't got <laughs> to seeing and, until now. But in the, in the context of today's discussion, I felt obligated to to up my game. So as a bit of a bit of a laugh, what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to give you three quotes from films and it's just to see if you can identify the film. Okay. And they're all okay. favorite. Well, they're all favorites of mine, and you'll 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 understand why I've chosen these quotes. The first is, I admire its purity, a survivor unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. Terminator. Oh. Daniela, do you, do you want to have a go? Oh no, that's Alien. Isn't no, it? that's Alien. <laughs> that's Alien. That's Alien. The second is, is this real or is it a game? What's the difference? Um, I'll give you. I'll give you another one. Uh, a strange game. The only winning move is not to play. How about a nice game of chess? Yeah, that's uh, war games. That's war games. War that's games. war games. <laughs> and I'll give you. I'll give you the last one. It can't be reasoned with. It can't be bargained with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse <laughs> yeah. or fear, and it absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead. Boris, Terminator. <laughs> That's Terminator. So you got them all. So you can appreciate why I, I chose those. But uh, yeah, so I, 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 my, my uh, response to, to hearing Daniele today is a mixture of awe and terror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. well, but then the book I, I would suggest uh, would be uh, the right one also for you, uh, <laughs> if I may. Um, yeah, because the the book would be White Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Robert Sapolsky. 
Okay. <laughs> no doubt, but um, well, I, I'm pretty interesting in everything that has to do with psychology and uh, yeah, also um, physiology, etc. Uh, so this is a book that talks uh, about how stress uh, really has an impact on uh, your body from a uh, biochemical perspective uh, and physiological perspective. Um, and it's very interesting because Robert Sapolsky is uh, actually um, <coughs> a primatologist. So, so he, he has spent his life working uh, particularly with monkeys mm. and then uh, extrapolated a lot of his uh, learning to uh, trying to understand uh, humans and how they process all kinds of emotions, in particular stress, and uh, how that has an impact on your body and what you can do actually to to uh, be less affected or to redirect the stress that you inevitably produce towards uh, more, uh, well, the way a, a zebra would do. <laughs> so without giving the game away too much, why don't zebras have ulcers? <laughs> well, because because they don't have a society, probably. <laughs> oh, okay. They're, yeah. they're, fierce, they're fierce individualists, are they? <laughs> just just no, zebras, no. though. Uh, no, no, it's a, yeah, it's a, he yeah, chose zebras, but th the point is that. Uh, presumably uh, that would work for pandas because pandas are very solitary yeah. and isolated as well. Yeah, probably. Yeah, but in general, uh, for all animals that when uh, they, uh, they are scared of something because it, it is something real and not something imagined. I think because, I've got the perfect job. I'm going to be a zebra ulcer surgeon. Yeah. <laughs> has life. It's another quiet day at the office. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Uh, the point is that these animals, uh, when they, they are scared because there is something real, such as a lion, yeah. so they run, uh, which is uh, what our... Uh, the fight what, or flight what, response. Yeah. What, what it, it is what your body is preparing you for uh, when you get really stressed. So fight or flight. I've often, I've often thought this is this is really intriguing in the context of, of the financial markets that fight or flight doesn't really work because fight is basically just be in denial about the move that's, 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 that's occurring you to lose money and flight is 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 run away neither of which is remotely satisfactory as an outcome. <laughs> that's yeah. partly why the markets are so difficult for people. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's brilliant. Um, mine's going to be a. Um, I, this is such a, a sort of a middle class show to to recommend, but I, I I'm sorry, but I absolutely love it. It's called um, and it does tie into what we're doing. It's um, it's called Fake or Fortune, which is a BBC program that has got Fiona Bruce. Uh, you you may not have heard of this in because you're in um, in Italy, aren't you, Daniele? So I'm sorry yeah. that it's 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 so much related to a UK program. You've been spared, Fiona Bruce. I, I, <laughs> so, I, I envy you. Well, I, I don't mind Fiona Bruce. Uh, Fiona Bruce and Philip Mould. Uh, so Philip Mould runs an art gallery and Fiona Bruce is presenting the show. And what they do is, um, say a member of the public will, will have a piece of artwork and they will say, we think this is by, you know, Go Gang, Constable, someone, you know, big name, whatever it might be. And then they, they try to work out whether it's a fake or, or uh, you know, or worth a fortune. 
And it is absolutely brilliant because the scientific techniques they use to date it, the amount of detail, the amount of <laughs> research they do is fantastic. I mean, it's like, honestly, it might not sound it, but it is absolutely brilliant. Each episode is, <laughs> is really exciting. Well, I find it, so maybe I'm just getting old, but I find it really exciting. So um, the, the reason why I mention it, and I wanted to wait until you came on to mention this show, is because... It's clearly an area where you have experts who say, well, you know, the brush strokes look a little, uh, you know, wrong for this artist and look <laughs> at this and look at that. Um, and of course, there's so many nuances because people can mess with paintings as well and touch them up and try to make them look better for sale and, and all that. And they, they've and presumably uh, the, the, the legitimate artist can also mess around with his own process to try and throw people off the scent. Well, exactly. I mean, that it, it's a brilliant point that sometimes the artists themselves have actually just experimented slightly with something different. And that that has made it not look like the, that artist. But also some artists were, you know, um, very big in their day and some and were copied by many and others weren't and so you you get this like post um you know when they're the post popularity um forgeries come in so the techniques they use are just amazing the way they analyze the paint and all that but mentioning it today was because of the ai aspect of it that could be used um to you know if you fed all the paintings of, of a certain artist into an ai and then said is this real or not i think it would make an amazing addition to the the uh, the, the the individual um you know deciding because sometimes these committees are just like they decide whether something's right or wrong and if they say no it's not then that's it and there's no way of like changing their mind and this to me is like you know uh, that that doesn't feel right, even though I guess there's no other way of doing it. Yeah, yeah, not true. It, it would probably it probably exist already. I think. <laughs> well, uh, as mm. to the, yeah, no, you you've checked. Well, you you say that, but I mean, okay, we'd have to wait. For the latest ones came out, and they didn't use this technique. Mm. But because the art world is worth, you know basically billions it's i mean i if if you were if you were on the show talking about how you were doing this in the art world of course the next thing would be well why aren't you doing it in the financial markets but it's almost like the reverse thing it's it's it seems to me that if you were going to choose another area than doing it in the art world which is worth millions of, and billions of dollars <laughs> uh, it would be would be the an area that's not only really interesting and, and or, I dare I say it, it, it would it wouldn't be easy for you to do it, but it wouldn't be that hard either because you're just feeding in all the artists' original work and and actually I know some people have done this with music and art to create new works, but whether they've mm -hmm. done it to actually work out whether something's a fake or not is is perhaps another thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that probably to determine um, if a, a painting is a fake, um, you would probably need also additional data which you cannot get just from the picture itself, uh, but yeah, physical data about um, yeah the, the materials used, etc. But if you could also get data, probably yes, an artificial system, uh, intelligence system would be pretty accurate. Actually, I've seen um, AI-based systems that. Um, for, for example, I see one that um, if you upload um, a picture, uh, it automatically uh, stylizes it as it 
uh, was Van Gogh who painted it. Oh, wow. Uh, so you do have this type of AIs, uh, which generally um, use uh, generative adversarial networks also, um, where, yeah, the, 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 these networks learn to still stylize things according to a certain uh, well, style. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and you see that. I, I think that anyone would uh, see that the generated picture I- is a fake, uh, but still, uh, they are quite impressive. Yeah, I heard this was done with music, and when and this is this is the strange thing about human beings, right? You know, we, we know from books like um, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow that if you tell somebody that they're drinking a bottle of wine that costs, you know, a hundred dollars, they will then suddenly start telling you how amazing it is, as opposed to if you tell them it was five dollars, they'll they'll start saying how you know it tastes like a cheap a cheap <laughs> wine, and they did the same with AI created classical music where they played it to people and they said yeah this is brilliant and they say well it's developed by a computer well actually it sounds a little bit robotic (laughs) now you've mentioned it and you know so (laughs) it's funny how people's perceptions were changing once they got given new information and so such is our strength such is our weakness as human beings it's so interesting that we're like that yeah yeah um but Daniele, look, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm sure we could speak for another few hours and I know you, you, you've got to go because you've got to go to a meeting. But before you do, please, will you let us know how we can stay in contact with what you're what you're up to? Where, where are your are you on Twitter? Uh, what's your website details? And if anybody wanted to contact you to talk to you more about this area, how would they do that? Yeah, well, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm not a big uh, social media fan, actually. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, I do have a profile on LinkedIn. And uh, um, anyway, uh, the company's website is axion.ai, so which is a x y o n dot a i. Okay, brilliant. I will put um, links to your LinkedIn if that's okay, and yes. the website on on uh, in our show notes um as well as obviously the media picks that we've mentioned um daniele just to say it was, it's been a real pleasure thank you so much for coming Likewise. on really enjoyed it and um, um you know, daniele how do we know we haven't been talking to a machine for the last hour and a half <laughs> <laughs> well you don't you don't you don't that that's true that's absolutely yeah, true i've actually trained uh, a model that uh, listen to all my conversations regarding ai in the past and then uh, uh, now it's generating uh, stuff brilliant stuff okay daniel all the very best thank you so much and uh, thank you thank hope, you to, hope to have you back on it'd be great to you know sure. when you've developed a new model and and, and something it'll be brilliant to talk when about we've, that. when we've won the war against the machines yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> fine fine great okay stuff. all the very best thank you thank you take Bye. care cheers and thank you so much for listening we'll catch you next time This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.